When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You will laugh at my vexation when you hear the various calamities that have befallen me. In the first place, when I came to review my funds, I had the mortification to discover that I had lost 15 silver dollars out of my waistcoat pocket. They had worn through the various mendings the pocket had sustained and sought their liberty in the sands of Carolina. I determined not to vex myself with what could not be remedied and ordered Peter to take out my clothes that I might dress for court when to my astonishment and grief after fumbling several minutes in the portmanteau Staring at vacancy and sweating most profusely, he turned to me with the doleful tidings that I had no pair of breeches. You may be sure this piece of intelligence was not very graciously received. However, after a little scolding, I determined to make the best of my situation and immediately set out to get a pair made. But the greatest of evils I found was followed by still greater. Not a tailor in town could be prevailed on to work for me. They were all so busy that it was impossible to attend to my wants, however pressing they might be, and I have the extreme mortification to pass the whole term without that important article of dress I have mentioned. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall, 2nd of January, 1803. Though you wouldn't know it from the tone of this tale about how the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court ended up in Washington, D.C. without a change of pants, when he sat down to write this letter to his wife Polly, John Marshall was only a month and a half away from delivering one of the most important judicial decisions in American history. Before we get to that historic ruling, however, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Robert Van Ness of the Virginia History Podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. Whether through his podcast or his social media, Robert's passion for Virginia history is infectious. On his podcast, he has covered a good deal of the early history of Virginia, along with interviewing various scholars and professionals in the field of Virginia history. He's currently working on a series about the first families of Virginia and is providing some great information about prominent figures as well as individuals with which you may not be quite so familiar. I'm waiting in anticipation to hear if there are some episodes with presidential families ahead, including my favorite lesser-known president study, William Henry Harrison. I hope you'll join me in becoming a regular listener of the Virginia History Podcast. You can find Robert's podcast on the web at vahistorypodcastalloneword.com or by searching on your favorite podcast app of choice. I'll also share information about it on my social media. Before we turn to Washington, D.C. for the beginning of the Supreme Court session, I think it would be worthwhile to take a moment to turn our attention back west as, for the first time since 1796, our episode 1.33 by our count, a new state was preparing to enter the Union. We last discussed Ohio's bid for statehood in episode 3.8 with the passage of the Enabling Act. That act provided for the election of delegates to a state convention with delegates distributed by population. While we think of modern-day Ohio as having cities and towns spanning from Lake Erie to the Ohio River, Ohio in 1802 was quite different. In terms of U.S. citizens at the time, The Cincinnati area had the largest population, 
and thus Hamilton County was represented by 10 of the 35 members in the state convention. Marietta in the Muskingum Valley was awarded four delegates, while Chillicothe in the Scioto Valley, which is about halfway between Cincinnati to the west and Marietta to the east, was allotted five delegates. Further up the Ohio River and west of Pittsburgh, Steubenville and Jefferson County were awarded five delegates as well. Now, those of you familiar with Ohio geography would likely have questions about this, as those places already mentioned covers the south and eastern portion of the state. But what about central and northwest Ohio? Well, at the time, about a third of what we now know of as Ohio was still legally the property of Native American nations. While we don't have exact population figures, this area was the home of Shawnees and Wyandots. Despite the fact that the Enabling Act defined the boundaries of the new state to include their lands, no representatives from Native nations were invited to participate in the state convention. Instead, the election of delegates to the convention became a local manifestation of larger national debates with pro-statehood Democratic Republicans facing off against Federalists whose primary leaders were based in the Marietta area who opposed statehood as proposed. As noted by historian William Utter, it wasn't that they necessarily opposed statehood, but they wanted a smaller state to be designated that they could control. During the campaign, as the Marietta Federalists largely hailed from New England, they attacked the Democratic-Republican candidates as wanting, quote, to introduce Negro slavery amongst us. In response to this charge, one of the Democratic-Republican leaders from Chillicothe, Edward Tiffin, issued a public statement declaring that, quote, even were it possible to establish slavery here, which it is not because it was forever prohibited by the Ordinance of 1787, I would regard its introduction as being the greatest injury we could possibly inflict upon our posterity. Once the results from the election were in, it was clear that the Democratic Republicans would dominate the state convention, which assembled in Chillicothe in November 1802. Now, I won't go into too much detail of this convention's proceedings, but we do need to take a moment to consider the convention's third session, in which the governor of the Northwest Territory, Arthur St. Clair, addressed the body. As discussed back in episode 3.8, Democratic Republicans from the Northwest Territory had been working to get Jefferson to dismiss St. Clair for a while, but since the administration assumed that statehood was just around the corner, there didn't seem to be much point. There was no way St. Clair would be elected governor of the new state, so why not just let him serve out what time remained in his soon-to-be non-existent role? Jefferson and his administration did agree to the validity of some of the charges that St. Clair had abused his authority, and thus, Secretary of State Madison wrote to St. Clair on June 23, 1802, asserting that, quote, although he is disposed to view with much indulgence the transactions of an officer who has stood in so many honorable and interesting relations to his country, he, i.e. President Jefferson, has judged it indispensable that his particular disapprobation should be expressed to you. Surely that would give him the hint to just keep his mouth shut and his hands clean until it came time to leave office, right? Oh no, dear listener, not Arthur St. Clair. St. Clair's enemies in the convention considered, quote, denying him the privilege of speaking. But as Nathaniel Massey is reported as saying, they decided that their best course was to, quote, give him enough rope and he will hang himself. Thus, St. Clair used his address to the convention to attack the Enabling Act and the U.S. Congress. Quote, that the people of the territory should form a convention needed no act of Congress. 
to pretend to authorize it was on their part an interference with the internal affairs of the country, which they had neither the power nor the right to make. Sinclair also attacked provisions that Congress had attached to the Enabling Act, reminding everyone that there had been no such provisions put on Vermont, Kentucky, or Tennessee before they joined the Union. Now, we should note that, according to Section 7 of the Enabling Act, these propositions were put forward to the convention by Congress, quote, for their free acceptance or rejection, and dealt with setting land aside for schools, setting other land aside for state use, and using proceeds from the sale of public land to build public roads. While it is true from all I've seen in my research that no such propositions were sent to the other three states listed prior to their joining the Union, and that, by sending the propositions, it does seem like Congress would have preferred them to be enacted, it's pretty clear that, despite Sinclair's hyperbole, the prospect of statehood would not be threatened if all three were rejected. Still, Sinclair concluded his speech calling on the convention to signal their defiance of the congressional will. As can be expected, a copy of the speech was quickly sent to Jefferson. Even Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin, who had previously argued against St. Clair's removal, saw this as a step too far. And on November 22nd, at Jefferson's order, Secretary of State Madison sent a very curt note to St. Clair, which read as follows, quote, Sir, the President observing in an address lately delivered by you to the convention held at Chillicothe, an intemperance and indecorum of language towards the legislature of the United States and a disorganizing spirit and tendency of very evil example and grossly violating the rules of conduct enjoined by your public station determines that your commission of governor of the Northwestern Territory shall cease on the receipt of this notification. This note was handed to St. Clair shortly after by his successor, Charles Willing Byrd, who had been the territorial secretary. Though Byrd wouldn't serve in the office long, the fact that he was being replaced by a political enemy had to be a stinging conclusion to what had been a lengthy public career for St. Clair. St. Clair had served in the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War, then had served not only as a member of the Confederation Congress, but also for the majority of 1787 as that body's president, before becoming governor of the Northwest Territory in 1789, a post he had held under now three U.S. presidents. After all that, St. Clair returned to his home in Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania, not only politically ruined, but also deeply in debt. He ultimately had to sell his estate, the Hermitage, and opened an inn on the Forbes Road outside the Ligonier Valley. St. Clair would live nearly 15 more years after leaving office, passing away in August 1818 after falling from the back of a wagon. While he does leave a very complex legacy, there is no denying that Arthur St. Clair, for all of his political and military shortcomings, did, for better or worse, have a great impact in the development of what we now know of as the American Midwest. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. While St. Clara was being dealt with, the convention got on with its work 
and soon had drafted a new state constitution which established a government with a strong legislature and a weak executive, in part in response to St. Clair's example during his tenure as territorial governor. The initial state judiciary set up by this constitution was described by historian William Utter as being, quote, much criticized at the time and soon proved to be quite inadequate for the needs of a growing commonwealth. While the document would firmly declare that, quote, there shall be neither slavery nor involuntary servitude in this state, a motion to provide for black suffrage was defeated, with Virginia native Edward Tiffin casting the tie-breaking vote. On November 29th, the convention wrapped up its work, the state constitution was sent to Washington, D.C., where it was quickly approved by Congress, and elections were held in January to choose a new governor and state legislature. Despite a low voter turnout, Tiffin was elected as the first governor of Ohio, and on March 1, 1803, the legislature of the 17th State of the Union assembled in Chillicothe to begin its work. With the nation continuing to expand westward, President Jefferson felt that the time was right to pursue an idea that had been on his mind for quite some time. As we've discussed previously and at length in episode 3.7, Jefferson from an early age had been interested in the West. In the 1780s, he proposed that George Rogers Clark lead an expedition to the West and had been aghast at the idea that a British scientific expedition might cross the western portion of North America to the Pacific. As Jefferson wrote at the time, quote, They pretend it is only to promote knowledge. I'm afraid they have plans of colonizing into that quarter. In the 1790s, in his role with the American Philosophical Society, Jefferson had led the effort, quote, in planning an exploratory journey by the French botanist André Michel. As president, though, Jefferson had the clout to be able to achieve the aim that he had thought of for so long, an all-American expedition to the West. The first question, though, was who to choose to go on such an expedition. In 1802, George Rogers Clark turned 50 years old, so it was unlikely that he would be up to the task. However, he did write to Jefferson in December of that year that his 32-year-old younger brother, William Clark, was, quote, well-qualified almost for any business. If it should be in your power to confer on him any post of honor and profit in this country in which we live, it will exceedingly gratify me. Just stick a pen in the name of William Clark, will you? For though he came highly recommended by his famous brother, Jefferson at the time had his eyes on someone closer to home for joining the expedition. Jefferson had known Meriwether Lewis's parents back in Virginia and because of this association, had heard of his experiences in what we now call the Midwest. This had gotten Jefferson's attention enough for him to invite Lewis to become his private secretary at the president's house, as discussed in episodes 3.3 and 3.5. After a couple of years of living and working under the same roof, Jefferson and Lewis had come to find shared interest and a similar westward-looking vision. However, the close proximity meant that, in his consideration of Lewis, the president also had to bring to bear his observations of Lewis's depression. As noted by Lewis biographer Clay Jenkinson, quote, It seemed clear to many of his contemporaries, including Thomas Jefferson, that Lewis suffered from some sort of mental illness. The terms of choice in the Enlightenment were hypochondria and melancholia. Ultimately, Jefferson must have decided that this would not be a deal-breaker as he approached Lewis at the end of 1802 about the idea. Lewis's only condition was that he didn't just want to accompany the expedition. 
he wanted to be the leader. Given his wilderness and military experience, this was acceptable. And thus, as described by historian Julie Fenster, quote, Jefferson looked across his desk and hired his first explorer, a highly intelligent, if unsophisticated man, anxious to undertake a two-year-long expedition on soldier's pay. Beyond just needing to find someone else to take over as his private secretary, Jefferson also had to arrange funding for his expedition and permission for the expedition to cross over foreign-held territories on the way. Thus, in late November, he started the latter process by meeting with Spanish minister to the U.S., Carlos Martinez de Arujo y Tacón. As discussed last episode, Irujo had been working since Jefferson's inauguration to keep on the administration's good side. And given the recent tensions over New Orleans, it was a prime time for the president to hit him up for a favor. As noted by Fenster, quote, Though Jefferson presumed that by the time Lewis arrived in Louisiana, the territory would belong to France, his priority lay in showing Spain the strength of American ambitions west. Despite Irujo's desire to keep in the administration's good graces, he couldn't help but, despite Jefferson's claims of altruistic purposes, see in this expedition a desire to plant a flag for future expansion west, much the same as Jefferson had seen in the earlier plans for a British expedition, and Arujo had no problem with sharing his concerns about this with the president. Again from Fenster, quote, That was no setback for Jefferson. It showed that the threat of expedition carried a certain sting. The true challenge would be to secure the approval of the British and the French. As it turns out, neither of those nations kicked up nearly as much fuss as the Spanish minister. The French quickly agreed to supply the necessary passports. Given that the plans were for the U.S. and France to share a lengthy border, and the French government had enough on its plate, which we have previously and will discuss in more detail in future episodes, they were eager to appease Jefferson in this small matter. Likewise, the British government, which had a tentative claim to lands in what is now referred to as the Pacific Northwest, saw this as an opportunity to build on what British charge d'affaires to the U.S. Edward Thornton called, quote, a very great change in the opinions of all ranks in this government in favor of Great Britain. By the end of December 1802, Jefferson had informed all of the foreign powers that would be involved, but he had yet to notify Congress. To be fair, if there had been strong objections from anyone besides Arujo, the plans for the expedition may have withered on the vine. But now that he could see a path forward, it was time to bring Congress into the fold and secure the funding needed to carry out this endeavor. Thus, on January 18, 1803, only a few days after his nomination of James Monroe for his special diplomatic mission to resolve the New Orleans situation, Jefferson sent a confidential message to both the House and the Senate which started on the subject of trade with native nations. Gradually, though, he began to shift the focus in the message until towards the end of the document he wrote, quote, While other civilized nations have encountered great expense to enlarge the boundaries of knowledge by undertaking voyages of discovery and for other literary purposes in various parts and directions, our nation seems to owe to the same object as well as to its own interest to explore this i.e. the Mississippi River Basin, the only line of easy communication across the continent, and so directly traversing our own part of it. The interest of commerce placed the principal object within the constitutional powers and care of Congress, 
and that it should incidentally advance the geographical knowledge of our own continent cannot but be an additional gratification. The nation claiming the territory, i.e. Spain, regarding this as a literary pursuit, which it is in the habit of permitting within its dominions, would not be disposed to view it with jealousy, even if the expiring state of its interest there did not render it a matter of indifference. Now, as we know, dear listener, Spanish Minister Arujo did not regard the expedition as, quote, a matter of indifference, quite to the contrary. However, we see here Jefferson, the master diplomat and politician at work. If, despite the confidential nature of the message, word got back to Arujo of this message, if he claimed that he was misrepresented by Jefferson, this would lead to a rift with the administration. And for what? It was common knowledge in government circles by this point that Louisiana was going back to the French. Sure, as Fenster notes, quote, his Catholic Majesty's government was angry, resentful, and most of all surprised to hear that Lewis was going ahead with the expedition, even without a Spanish passport. In a practical sense, though, the Spanish had no skin in this game and had much more to lose if they were on the outs with the Jefferson administration. Resentful the Spanish may be, but Jefferson correctly calculated that Arujo would keep his mouth shut. Congress would approve the requested appropriations, and plans for his expedition would proceed. What Jefferson could not predict, though, was what lay in the future for the judiciary in the United States. As we've discussed in past episodes, Democratic Republicans were wary of the judiciary, especially following the prosecutions under the Sedition Act and what they saw as the packing of the federal judiciary with Federalist judges at the end of Adams's term. When Jefferson first took office, there was little they could do about the situation, but slowly Democratic-Republicans on the state and national level started to make inroads towards reform. We discussed the repeal of the Judiciary Act of 1801 in Episode 3.8, and how the Judiciary Act of 1802 left the Supreme Court with a recess of 14 months. While this period of inaction forestalled any suspected Federalist trickery in that court, there was still the problem of all the Federalist judges in office. Luckily, there was a constitutional remedy that the Democratic-Republicans began to turn to as an answer. Factions within the Democratic-Republican leadership in Pennsylvania had been in dispute over whether to increase the number of judges in order to fill the new judgeships with their folks or to extend the powers of the justices of the peace. They finally reached a compromise plan. Impeach Federalist judges starting with the presiding judge of the 5th District of Pennsylvania, Alexander Addison. As noted by historian Dumas Malone, quote, Though he, Addison himself, delivered political harangues from the bench, he denied to a Republican colleague the right to address a grand jury. In January 1803, both houses of the state legislature voted for conviction, and Addison was removed from office. Having seen it work on a state level, the question became not only when it should be tried on the federal level, but on whom. Jefferson himself provided the first target, but before he could act, Federalists made the first move. Federalist leaders had been planning a strategy for a bit to address federal judges who had been removed when their posts were eliminated by the repeal of the Judiciary Act of 1801. On January 27th, 11 of these deposed judges sent memorials to the House and Senate, quote, requesting Congress to define their status and urging that the issue of their compensation be referred to the court. As one would expect, 
Federalists in the House used the opportunity to question the entire repeal of the Judiciary Act, while Democratic Republicans argued, quote, that the people, not the courts, were the judges of the constitutionality of acts of Congress. Over in the Senate, Senator James Ross, Federalist from Pennsylvania, asserted that the judicial branch was, quote, the only body to which we could look for protection from laws that were unconstitutional. Democratic-Republican senators, meanwhile, attacked the deposed judges for submitting their memorials in the first place, with Senator Wilson Carey Nicholas, Democratic-Republican from Virginia, questioning, quote, Would not peace and union have been better promoted by keeping the subject out of sight and by not attempting to irritate party animosities? Ultimately, the Senate rejected the memorial by a vote of 15 against to 13 for, while the House rejected it by a wider margin of 61 against to 37 for. After this first salvo, Jefferson figuratively fired the next shot on February 3rd. On that date, he sent a special message to Congress about complaints against U.S. District Court Judge John Pickering of New Hampshire. It seems that Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin had received complaints about Pickering interfering in the work of customs officials investigating and prosecuting potential violations. In one case, as described by Malone, quote, at a trial at which the case of the government was presented by the Republican district attorney and the Federalist merchant was represented by a strongly Federalist lawyer, the judge, in a state of distressing intoxication, ruled for the Federalist owner and, in denying an appeal, employed offensive language. Gallatin attempted to work through Senator William Plumer, Federalist from New Hampshire, in the fall of 1802 to convince Pickering to resign from his post, but to no avail. Thus, Gallatin submitted the documentation he had collected to Jefferson, and Jefferson, in turn, presented it to the House for its consideration. On February 4th, a committee was established to consider the evidence against Pickering, and within a couple of weeks, the committee reported out their recommendation, quote, that John Pickering, judge of the district court of the District of New Hampshire, be impeached of high crimes and misdemeanors. As the House began to consider impeachment, the Supreme Court was preparing to rule on cases that had been lingering for quite some time. Though the court had not set for a while, it doesn't mean that the justices had been idle, as they had been carrying out their circuit-riding duties. With the growing politicization of matters related to the judiciary, Chief Justice John Marshall had taken the lead on providing an example of nonpartisanship on the bench, an example which all of his colleagues followed, with the exception of Justice Samuel Chase, the high Federalist judge we have mentioned in the past. Returning to Washington, D.C. and opening their session on February 7th, however, there would be both added temptation to break from this conviction to be above the partisan fray, as well as increased scrutiny of their decisions, particularly with the case of Marbury v. Madison before the justices. As we left the case in episode 3.8, an order had been sent to Secretary of State James Madison to explain his action in not delivering the commissions to William Marbury and other officials that had been confirmed by the Senate to various posts just prior to Jefferson's coming to office. Despite having longer than they had originally envisioned, Madison opted not to respond and had not provided any requested information to the plaintiff. Thus, on January 28th, Senator John Howard, Federalist from Maryland, introduced a request from Marbury and his associates in the Senate, quote, for a certified copy of the Senate's executive journal from March 1801, attesting their confirmation as justices of the peace. As can be expected, Democratic-Republican senators leapt on this request, quote, 
as an unwarranted attempt to assail the president. The request was rejected by a vote of 15 against to 13 for. Thus, when former Attorney General Charles Lee began to lay out Marbury's case before the court on February 10th, instead of documentation, he called on testimony from the chief clerk of the State Department and his assistant to have them confirm that the nominations had in fact been sealed and ready to deliver. The clerk, however, claimed to have, quote, no direct knowledge of the Justice of the Peace Commissions, and his assistant, while he had seen them, could not attest to what had happened to them. As noted by historian Gene Edward Smith, Lee could have gone the route of calling for the testimony of the Secretary of State who would affix the seals to the commissions himself, namely Chief Justice John Marshall. Instead, he opted to call Attorney General Levi Lincoln as his next witness. As you may recall, Lincoln served as acting Secretary of State until Madison arrived in Washington, D.C. However, since he was the current Attorney General and an officer of the Supreme Court, Lincoln asked whether he was in fact required to testify, and if so, if he could see Lee's questions in writing and have time to consider his response prior to testifying before the court. Marshall granted the latter request, and after the court reviewed the four questions Lee had submitted, ruled that Lincoln should respond to them, but granted him leeway in terms of time to consider his response and reminded him that he, quote, need not disclose anything that was confidential and that he certainly need not incriminate himself. On February 11th, Lincoln took the stand and testified, quote, that he could not say what had happened to the commissions because he did not know whether Secretary Madison had ever had possession of them. As noted by Smith, quote, with considerable tact and a great deal of understanding, the Chief Justice and the Attorney General had avoided the collision the High Federalists were trying to engineer. In requiring that Lee put his questions in writing, the court had preempted the possibility of a dramatic interrogation of Lincoln that would undoubtedly have fanned the flames of partisanship. Lee's final submission to the court was an affidavit from Chief Justice Marshall's own brother, James Marshall, confirming that he had seen the commissions in the Secretary of State's office and, after unsuccessfully attempting to deliver some of them, had returned them to the State Department. With that, Lee concluded his case and Marshall asked Attorney General Lincoln if he would like to make arguments. Without any direction from Madison, Lincoln opted to make no statement before the court for the defense. As Marshall wanted to give a fair opportunity to the defense, he opened the floor up and announced that the court, quote, would attend to the observations of any person who was disposed to offer his sentiments. Hearing only crickets, Marshall then moved that the court would rule later and move forward with other business. It took the court two weeks to deliberate. Granted, part of the delay came from Justice Chase falling ill, but as the justices roomed in the same boarding house, they were still able to meet there to keep Chase from having to get out. If you'll indulge me on a quick tangent, dear listener, I learned something while researching this episode that I had wondered about for a bit. For their 1803 session, the justices did not lodge at Conrad and McMunn's like before, which as you'll recall, is where Jefferson stayed around his inauguration before he moved into the president's house. Though I've seen that boarding house referenced in numerous books over the years, I never learned what happened to it until doing this research. The reason the justices opted for Stell's Hotel in 1803 is that Conrad McMunn's had been destroyed in a fire. Also, extra trivia fact, Stell's Hotel 
was located where the Library of Congress building stands today. Anyway, I digress. It took the court a couple of weeks to decide how to proceed. As they were deliberating, other events were starting to divert attention away from the debates over the judiciary. Our old friend Alexander Hamilton had picked up his pen and had started criticizing Jefferson's decision to send James Monroe as a special envoy to negotiate on the New Orleans situation, with Hamilton instead advocating that the U.S. go to war and seize New Orleans and the Floridas by force. Hamilton had not been in a good place for quite some time by this point. In November 1801, his eldest son, Philip, died from injuries sustained in a duel, and despite the birth of his eighth child, named Philip in honor of his brother, in June 1802, as noted by historian Ron Chernow, quote, After Philip's death, Hamilton tumbled into a bottomless despair, and his, quote, views seemed to emanate from some gloomy recess of his mind. Despite his grief and depression, Hamilton continued to involve himself in politics and planned a comeback for himself. Certainly, his essays in the New York Evening Post in early February 1803 had a quick impact as Senator James Ross introduced resolutions calling on Jefferson, quote, to use military force to take possession of New Orleans and calling 50,000 state militia into national service to assist. Ross's resolutions threatened to inflame a situation that President Jefferson had been working to keep contained until his special envoy could get to Europe to negotiate. As the Senate began to debate the resolutions and how the government should respond to the New Orleans situation, another hit came on February 24th from the living room of Stell's Hotel. Rather than have the still-ailing Justice Chase venture to Committee Room 2 in the Capitol, the Supreme Court delivered its unanimous decision in the case of Marbury v. Madison from the boarding house. Chief Justice Marshall read the decision of the court, which started by answering the question of whether William Marbury was entitled to his commission as a justice of the peace. Yes, the court said. His appointment, which had been confirmed by the Senate, was Marbury's legally, and, quote, to withhold his commission, therefore, is an act deemed by the court not warranted by law, but violative of a vested legal right. Now that that was settled, Marshall turned to the question of whether the situation should be resolved through the issuing of a writ of mandamus, which, as we discussed in episode 3.8, is, quote, a judicial command instructing an officer of the government to perform a particular act. At first, as the argument continued, those in attendance anticipated that the court was leaning towards issuing the writ. But then, there was a shift, and it looked as if, no, it would not be issued. Ultimately, the court ruled that, despite being directly granted the right to issue a writ of mandamus under the Judiciary Act of 1789 and the writ being a common remedy in similar cases in established common law, Article 3 of the Constitution did not actually grant the Supreme Court the authority to issue a writ of mandamus. Thus, the court was declaring that portion of the Judiciary Act of 1789 as unconstitutional and dismissing the case without issuing a remedy to the unlawful denial of William Marbury his commission. After four hours of listening to the Chief Justice deliver this opinion, those in attendance at Stell's Hotel, much as I'm imagining you are as well, dear listener, were left scratching their heads and saying, Wait, what just happened? Let's take a moment to break down this decision. The Supreme Court was saying that Madison and the Jefferson administration was unlawful in denying Marbury and the others their commissions after they had been duly confirmed by Congress. However, 
because the only remedy to resolve the situation was in a law that was unconstitutional. Not only could the court not carry out such an unlawful act, but they were also striking down the part of the law that was unconstitutional. If this sounds familiar to those with any familiarity with the court, then it should. The reason this case is so well known is not because of its impact on William Marbury, but rather because it established the principle of judicial review, that the federal judiciary not only had the right and authority, but the responsibility for judging whether legal statutes and judicial decisions from lower courts were constitutional or not. The significance of this ruling has only increased over time, but even at the time it was issued, there were some pretty strong opinions expressed. We'll discuss more of the initial impact next time, but for now, let's quickly finish up William Marbury's story. Marbury never did get his commission, but you shouldn't feel too sorry for him. He ended up as a successful banker and from all accounts led a pretty comfortable life for the rest of his days. So where are we leaving off today? Internal disputes, potential international clashes, challenging legal precedents, and tons of uncertainty. I hope you'll join us next time as Jefferson and his administration try to sort through all of this in an episode I'd like to call Ch-Ch-Ch-Changes. Until then, I'd like to thank Robert again for providing the intro quote for this episode. Be sure to check out the Virginia History Podcast once you're done with this episode. I'd also like to give a special thanks to the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of clips from Jefferson and Liberty for the intro and outro music. To find out more about the Itinerant Band, as well as to check out the sources used for this episode and all of the past episodes, go to the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. You can also learn on the website all the ways that you can subscribe to the podcast and the ways that you, yes you, dear listener, can help to support the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have left ratings and reviews. Those are a great way to let others who are looking for a new podcast know why they should check out this one. To that end, I wanted to share with you this five-star review left by Ben of the Thugs and Miracles podcast. The review is titled Cuts Through the Myths and goes as follows. Quote, Jerry paints a picture of the U.S. founders that is engaging, provocative, and stripped of the mythology that often clouds our understanding. This podcast is great history and a fun listen. One of the greatest joys in this podcasting journey is making the acquaintance of so many amazing podcasters and history buffs. Earning their respect for the time and effort I put into each episode is a great honor indeed. Thanks so much, Ben, and I hope all of you will check out Thugs and Miracles, where Ben takes listeners through the history of the kings and queens of France from the very beginning. Thanks also to those of you who have shared information about the podcast on social media. If you're not connected with me on there already, I can be found on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast, all one word. If you'd like to send me an email with any questions or comments you may have, I can be reached at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Finally, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to listen. Until next time, take care, dear friends. Hello everyone. 
My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.